Okay, recording in progress. Good evening, everyone. Tonight is our last session for the year on the history of anti-Semitism. So uh, kudos to everybody who tuned in all throughout the season. I think this is our 34th lecture on the topic. Uh, tonight we'll discuss Holocaust denial. And then at the end, we'll talk about is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism. Um, Holocaust denial is an important subject matter in the history of 20th century and 21st century anti-Semitism because it is a means by which people who don't like Jews get to write an alternative version of the story that makes them look better or that robs the Jew of their martyrdom, their victimhood, and is an attempt to delegitimize whatever advantages the Jewish people have gained since that time on the basis of us being unworthy of having received those advantages, most notably reparations money and the existence of the state of Israel. Okay, so certain statements are common in the Holocaust denial community. And they're sometimes mutually exclusive, but that doesn't bother them. So, for example, one popular claim is that Germans only wanted to deport Jews, not to kill them. In other words, resettlement in the East really was resettlement in the East, not death in, in a, extermination camps. Or there were no gas chambers for mass murder. Or the actual number of Jews killed was far fewer than 6 million. Or the Holocaust was a hoax perpetrated by the Allies, the Soviet Union, the Jews collectively, the Zionists in particular. Now, these claims don't all mesh well with each other. The notion that, well, the number 6 million is inaccurate or grossly exaggerated may be willing to concede that there was a substantial number of Jews killed in the, during the war, just not the number that the, the academic historians in the Jewish community will claim, as opposed to it's a complete fabricated hoax, which would say there were no Jews killed. Uh, so that's mean hakatzel hakatzel from one extreme to the other. So does three million make it better than six million? So in the eyes of those who are looking to uh, knock the Jew off the pedestal, to be able to reduce the number from six million to three million is a success in their eyes. Now, if that were in fact the case, it would be a success for the Jewish people. We'd have three more million survivors. But they don't view it that way. They view it in terms of, forget the metziut of, of what happened. Let's talk about the after effects. And if you can reduce the number, the Jew isn't then a number one in the queue for getting recompense for all the bad that happened. Okay. Now, deniers prefer not to be known as Holocaust deniers because... After all, uh, if they're going to be deniers of the Holocaust, they'd rather that the word Holocaust not be in the title given to them. Just like atheists take the term atheists. They would say, theism is stupid, so don't call me an atheist, I'm just rational. You're giving me the label atheist. So the Holocaust denier says, I'm not a Holocaust denier. There was no Holocaust. So what do we have to have this? We're historical revisionists. Historical revisionists. Uh, Others like the idea of negationism, negationism, and the methods by which they negate the historical record are, one, to deny outright, 
two, to minimize, and three, to ignore. And the ignore is critical because very often piece of, uh, a piece of uh, uh, a piece of data data will, will emerge which contradicts their perspective. And the best they could do is simply pretend like it doesn't exist, not to try to fend it off with some counter argument. Okay. In the academic discussions of Holocaust denial, there is a distinction drawn between hardcore denial and softcore denial. What are the, what's the difference between the two? The hardcore denial would be to, to make assertions that are so boldly contradicted by the historical record as to make it unfathomable that a rational person would say such a thing. As opposed to softcore denial, which will work at the margins and try to offer interpretations of the evidence that are more flattering to the Nazis and uh, do the Jews no favor. That's a convenient way to, 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 to put the difference. Well, when did denialism begin? What are the origins of Holocaust denial? So the answer is during the war itself. Uh, the Nazis engaged in Holocaust denial between 1942 and 1945, insofar as uh, concealing their motivations and their intentions from Jews being deported to the East or being liquidated from ghettos. And what was the purpose of that sort of denialism? To facilitate killing them when they got to the camps. In other words, if people knew with absolute clarity what was in store for them when they got to, to Birkenau or they got to, to Sobibor or, or where, wherever they might have been transported to, then the likelihood of some unrest uh, and disobedience was far greater by giving people a blurry picture of what was about to happen to them until the very end, until the showers themselves, that's a form of denialism that facilitates killing. But it goes beyond that. The Nazis already starting from 1943, uh, including after the, the escape from Sobibor, um, began doing what to their various facilities? Destroying them. Destroying them for what purpose? One, so that when, if and when they lost the war, which was becoming exceedingly likely, that people who engaged in horrific crimes against humanity might not get caught and might be able to live lives as free civilians after the war because the, the evidence of their criminality would have been gone from the world. And plenty of people, in fact, did just that and lived lives and you know, might have died five years ago at the age of 90-whatever, having never suffered for their crimes. Uh, so the destruction of evidence was a big to-do, especially the first four months of 1945, when the, the demise of Nazi Germany was absolutely clear to everyone. Okay. Um, information what had to be preserved. And there are, there's a wide range of sources, primary sources about the Shoah, that allowed the prosecutors at Nuremberg and later the prosecutors in Jerusalem in the Eichmann trial and the prosecutors in Poland and the, the thousands of trials in Poland had access to this information because the Nazis didn't destroy all records. They, they were meticulous record keepers and to an extent they didn't bother to cover their tracks. And the United States military preserved whatever they could under Eisenhower's leadership in May of 1945 and the Jews themselves, the Onig Shabbos out of the Warsaw Ghetto, um, 
preserved many records and plus eyewitness testimony, which was collected over the years. So anyone who, who is going to assert from the denial community, oh, there's no primary evidence of the Shoah, baloney, there's plenty of it. It's the most documented genocide in the history of, uh, of humanity. Aren't they preaching to the converted, though? Well, the answer is not necessarily. And that's what I want to get at right now. There were plenty of people in the mid-1940s, in the late years of the war and the immediate aftermath of the war, who might have been disinclined to believe that the German government engaged in wholesale butchery of the Jews, but were willing to acknowledge that, in fact, that happened upon seeing documentary evidence. Now, yes, there will be hardcore Nazis who either will be happy that the Holocaust happened or will deny it afterwards because it's convenient to deny. But there are also plenty of people in Europe and for that matter elsewhere in the world who want to be down the kaf zechut, even for Nazi Germany, until they can't. But once they can't, they'll readily acknowledge, yes, the Holocaust is a historical reality. Now, what was... Uh, the backdrop, what was the historical backdrop dating to 1917, 1918, that might have led people to conclude, at least initially, that the reports of a Shoah were exaggerated? Go back to World War One. So in World War One, the, uh, the British and French side of the war engaged in a certain anti-German propaganda, accusing the Huns of committing atrocities in Flanders Field, of uh, German soldiers chopping the breasts off of nuns. I mean, all sorts of horrific uh, uh, crimes were imputed to the German army in World War I, in large measure designed to get the Americans involved in the war. This is before the U.S. entered the war and to rally for the cause in a war which was not good versus evil, but rather was European powers versus European powers. But if you accuse the other side of horrific crimes, then your own population is more stirred to fight the good fight. But some of that, or maybe much of that, wasn't really true. So the temptation might have been to say, well, World War II was the same thing all over again, anti-German propaganda based upon lies. Except in this instance, it wasn't a lie. It was all true. And then some. Okay. Well, so that has nothing to do with Holocaust denial. That's, a con- that's conceding the truth, but trying to escape personal responsibility and have to suffer personal punishment for one's actions. So that's, that's part of the discussion in the 1950s, late 40s, 50s, into the 1960s. But... Uh, is actually, from a Jewish point of view, a good thing, because it makes them look bad. It makes them look sinister and you know, the banality of evil, but in moda ala emes, that all this stuff really happened. Okay, now, the claims that Holocaust stories were akin to anti-German atrocity propaganda from World War I did have an effect early on, but this was later undone by the documentary evidence. Reasonable people could be convinced. Yes, so, 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 so that's a very good point. That's a very good point. The, the German occupation of a dozen countries in Europe was rough. Now, it was rougher in the East than it was in the West, but even in the West, it was no picnic. Okay, Vichy France was no picnic. Um, now, neo-Nazis 
tried to rehabilitate the Nazi image after the war by discrediting notions of the Shoah. Uh, how do they do that? So how do the neo-Nazis in, in Germany and elsewhere in the decade or so after the war ended try to whitewash what happened? So one is to say the Kapos committed the atrocities. Now, by the way, they were Jewish. What, what's the truth of that? The answer is the Germans deliberately arranged the system so that much of the worst actions were taken by Jews against Jews, coerced, it's under commando and the others, under threat of their own, own, own deaths, which and most of them died anyway within a few months. Uh, but yes, the Germans facilitated a system whereby Jew does bad things to Jews. Weren't the couples killed after a couple of months? Yes, yes. Because- they didn't want the news to get out. So they right. Were, they, were, they were recycled every few months then. Uh, disorganization after defeat, after initial defeat. So the neo-Nazi approach is to say, well, if there were atrocities committed, they happened in the, in the chaos of the retreat, not in the forward march of the Wehrmacht in Operation Barbarossa, followed by Einsatzgruppen shooting a million and a half people, but rather, well, there was chaos at the end and some people died. Or... Weakened prisoners died of starvation and disease, but not of gassing and bullets. So these are some sort of weak, very weak attempts to uh, make it seem as though, even if there were many deaths, don't hold the Nazi regime accountable. Remember, deny, minimize, and ignore. Ignore is the third principle of this whole thing. Ignore they're preaching to themselves, but uh, well, bear in mind the following, that in, during the Cold War, when co- communist regimes from Berlin to, to any, everywhere further east of Berlin, encompassing nine or ten countries under the Soviet bloc, have populations that, yeah, didn't like the Nazis necessarily, but now don't like the left-wing Soviets, and plenty of those people were collaborators with the Nazi regime anyway during the rough and tumble years of the war because it was beneficial to be a collaborator. Well, they might be inclined to have the resurgence of a right-wing government or, or, or right-wing politics, even under the flag of Nazism. In other words, it was a, it was a venue of order in a chaotic time. Yeah, that's right. How did the Allied forces Okay, so Allied efforts to use German scientific knowledge in the in the early phases of the Cold War, uh, yes, we know now took advantage of the expertise of people who did really really bad things during uh, the thirty nine to forty five years, but that was always um, erased from the record in order to then take advantage of whatever Chachma was available. Not to say, well, what you did, we're going to recognize and say you're a tzaddik. Rather, we're going to say, well, you, we didn't see anything. Because you didn't do anything. All right. Now, Kristallnacht, in the view of the deniers, was a reasonable attempt to prevent Jewish profiteering. And the billion-dollar Reichsmacht penalty imposed by the German administration against the German-Jewish community was justified so as not to bankrupt the insurance companies. Okay? So you you laugh because some of these things are downright absurd. But yet, in the, the denial community, they go out of their way to try to give a seal of approval, a heksher, so to speak, on various aspects of Holocaust history. Okay. 
1978, there was the founding of the Institute for Historical Review uh, by far right-wing activists. And in 1980, uh, there was a, something of a famous incident. The Institute for Historical Review, which was founded in England, put out a $50,000 reward for anyone who could prove that the Jews were gassed at Auschwitz. In other words, on the premise that they don't believe that, we'll give you $50,000 if you can prove it. So Mel Mermelstein, who died of COVID actually earlier this year, uh, um, so he he wrote a letter to Jerusalem Post, uh, the Times of London, New York Times, giving his story about seeing his family members taken off to the gas chambers. And he wanted his his $50,000. And this led to all sorts of litigation in L.A. County Court. And in the end, the judgment was by the court was a judicial uh, statement acknowledging the facts of the Shoah, that they're not contested, that they cannot be contested, and ruling that Mermelstein gets $90,000. I don't know if you ever saw a penny. Probably didn't. Okay. In 1987, Radley Smith founded the Committee for the Open Debate on the Holocaust. In other words, that instead of it being a sealed shut matter, that you can't question these things, you should be allowed to question such things. That even Auschwitz is up to up for some historical review. Now, this is a phony baloney argument because ever since the late 1940s, from the earliest phases of the post-war era, every aspect of the Holocaust was subject to critical scrutiny, historical review by real historians. So to claim that it's a sealed book and nobody's allowed to say anything, but now we're going to open up discussion is itself a lie. Nothing was ever sealed shut. Everything is under continuous analysis. But the denier community wants to pretend as though they've been stifled and they're going to unmuzzle themselves. By the way, who did the same sort of thing 20 years later on the other side of the world? Ahmadinejad, in the 2006 uh, Iranian conference examining uh, the, the, the Shoah, which he becomes you know, a foaming at the mouth denier. So one of the ways that the deniers... Uh, pursue their anti-Jewish agenda is to claim that Hitler was no worse than Stalin. Now, Joe Stalin, Uncle Joe is not exactly a Tzaddik either. He's a Russia gummer, one of the worst people who ever lived. But what's the purpose of saying Hitler was no worse than Stalin in order to reduce the Shoah to something no different from any other wide-scale killing that occurred in the chaotic times of the mid-20th century. Um, and it's done deliberately, not because the, these uh, the, these uh, spokesmen are in any way looking to make Stalin into a hero. They're not. Oftentimes, they're right-wingers themselves. But because they want to make Hitler into less of a Russia. Level out the playing field. Okay. Um, Arno Mayer, who was a, something of a you know, pseudo-credible historian, regarded Bolshevism and Marxism to be the main targets of the Nazi wrath, and the Jews just got caught up in the middle of things. There are people who will believe that. But why? Why will people believe that? Or into Jews associated with the Bolsheviks? Good, correct. So ever since 1917, the notion of Judeo-Bolshevism has been spread by Jew haters and believed by many people. 
Okay, so the idea that you could conflate the Jewish enemy with the political Marxist enemy was something many, many people totally bought into. So the idea that the Nazi regime did not have any special axe to grind against the Jew and was not going out of its way to kill Jews, but rather was simply the, the bulwark against Marxism was quite palatable to a lot of people. But he got so many speeches on Hitler. Have you ever worked without All right, so ignore, ignore, ignore. That's you know, rule number three. It's a okay. Now, but it seems that if the Bolsheviks, even though they were associated with the Jews, yeah. are the targets, I would think the actual number of Bolsheviks really uh-huh. dwarfed by six million people. Okay, so if, if a person wanted to think that Nazi animus towards Jews was not because of religious issues or even racial issues, if you want to ignore all the racial rhetoric and say this was a 20th century political battle between right-wing Germany and left-wing Eastern Europe. Uh, you're right. The number of Jews who would totally dwarf the number of Bolsheviks who were killed specifically for being Bolsheviks. How many people were you know, political commissars uh, somewhere to points east who were captured and killed by the Nazis? There were. There were plenty. But pl- when I say plenty, I mean in the thousands or tens of thousands, not six million. All right. Yeah. Now, what about in... Um, Okay, so in the denier world, by the 1970s, 80s, into the 90s, the the focus shifted away from the money angle, the reparations angle, which was a big to-do in the 1950s. Okay, reparations itself is a major controversy in Israel. We spoke about that two, three years ago, Menachem Begin versus David Ben-Gurion. So the idea that the Jews want to grab money from the German state or from German corporations was 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 very much what animated uh, Holocaust denial in its first two or three decades. But after the 1970s, Holocaust denial got all wrapped up in the Palestinian struggle. And so it became a, a cudgel with which to beat the state of Israel and to deny legitimacy for the state of Israel, which leads us then to Arab Holocaust denial. It's rampant. It's been rampant since the 1950s, since the days of Gamal Abdul Nasser. Uh, Now, keep in mind that the free officer corps that overthrew King Farouk in 1952 were basically Nazi collaborators during the war. Uh, Anwar Sadat, who died for, you know, for the cause of peace with Israel, and I'm not going to, you know, judge him unfavorably about the end of his career, but early in his career, adopted the policy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, some would say he coined the term. And that was in reference to his hostility to the British. So therefore, the Nazis are his friend. Uh, Nasser, Holocaust denial. Um, was there any difference, though, between Holocaust denial and the denial of Jewish roots in Israel? Okay, good, good. So how much of Arab Holocaust denial is sincere denial versus just putting up a a front in order to blunt the force of Jewish claims to Eretz Yisrael? And the answer is anyone who's halfway educated, and even in the Arab world, knew the Jews were killed in Europe. No doubt about that. You have to be an idiot not to know that. But if this rhetorical device and strategy can help you push off 
Jewish claims to what you think should be Arab land, then you'll engage in it however distasteful it might be. And if your moral scruples are non-existent, then it's not even distasteful. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So among the Palestinians, there's an acknowledgement by certain key Palestinian intellectuals that Holocaust denial among Palestinians is quite intense, but is not uh, sincere in the sense of denying the historical record. It's merely a form of protest against what they feel is the unfair treatment of the Jew versus the Palestinian that the Jew has identified worldwide as the victim par excellence, courtesy of what the, the, the Germans did to them, whereas we, are the victims of Zionist aggression, are not recognized for what, you know, what we should be. So therefore, Holocaust denial is just a, like a cry of pain for their suffering, so they deny the other guy's pain. But that makes no sense, because whatever they feel, uh, however insincere they feel about yeah. denying the Holocaust, it's still out there, right? And yeah, the yeah. result, and the result, whether they, whether the giver of this denial is sincere or not, yeah. the result is people who are listening to this denial, right? That's right. So, uh, who is the, the 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 most egregious example of all of this? Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, who wrote his doctoral dissertation uh, titled "The Other Side: The Secret Relationship Between Nazism and Zionism." Now, we've in the past discussed the fact that there was a relationship between the Zionist movement and Nazi Germany with respect to the Havara Agreement throughout the 1930s before the war started to allow for the exodus of German Jews to Eretz Israel uh, and for the, to bring some of their material assets with them so they wouldn't be robbed blind and that this was beneficial to the issue because it, could, they, it allowed for the purchase of infrastructure goods. So yes, there was the Havara agreement. There also were stray contacts during the war of two types. One was between the Lehi and some random Nazi official somewhere that went nowhere. And the other was a Kastner situation, which was to save 1,600 Jews and ultimately was successful uh, in getting out certain people who, you know, VIPs who became, went on to have illustrious careers uh, in the Jewish world. So, yeah, there were contacts, but what Abu Mazen did was make it seem as though that Zionism and Nazism were working hand in glove to uh, facilitate the exodus of European Jewry to, to steal Palestine from the Arabs that this was some sort of a uh, you know, conspiracy to defraud the Palestinians. So how does the Mufti of Jerusalem fit into this? Again, ignore. So the Mufti of Jerusalem, who was in fact a chaver of, of, out of Hitler, and who, who went on a, a mission to Yugoslavia to recruit uh, Muslim soldiers to fight alongside the Wehrmacht, uh, that is conveniently ignored. Conveniently ignored. Okay. Um, what about Holocaust denial? in Eastern Europe. So in Eastern Europe, there's a special kind of Holocaust denial. In those countries, which became the Soviet bloc, so not USSR itself, but Soviet bloc countries, where a lot of the, st- the bad stuff was happening, okay, and actually part of the USSR, Ukraine as well, um, the denial is not that Jews die. The denial is that our ethno-nationals participated in the killings. 
meaning the Germans did it, not the Poles. The Germans did it, not the Lithuanians or the Latvians. The Germans did it, not the Ukrainians. The goal here for among these countries is to say we were victims and we are tzaddikim. We didn't do anything bad. And while horrible things happened to our citizens who happened to be of the Jewish faith and background, we didn't do it. Somebody else did it. Was that done with sincerity or to cover up what they knew were their egregious crimes? Okay, so so in, in some instances, it's done with sincerity. Meaning, if, a, if someone gets up in the 1950s, whether a politician or just a regular civilian, who doesn't really know what happened, they just know what they personally experienced in their little town, uh, you know, in an era before modern technology, before there was the internet, they might really believe the Germans came in, they killed half my family, I'm a Christian, you know, not a Jew, why, why, was, why were we being targeted? They, 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 they whisked away the men, they were shot to death in the forest somewhere. It looks like the Germans are bad, and I, simple Latvian or Lithuanian Ukrainian, didn't do anything wrong, my people didn't do anything wrong. So there were plenty of people who sincerely believed this stuff. And I can't fault them for it, because they just didn't know any better. But, but, at the, but at the level of, you know, the higher-ranking officialdom, who knew exactly what was going on and you know, could not really deny the historical record, these efforts at denial are just to cover their tracks, to make them look good, and to not have to suffer the consequences that Germany suffered in terms of material reparation. Remember, nobody wants to give a penny. No one wants to give a, 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 a ruble or a Reichmark. Yeah. Do you think that time is on the side of the deniers? No. I, I, don't, I don't think time is on the side of the deniers. I think that people are less likely to care about the, to, about the historical record and therefore less likely to care to fight the historical record the further into the past it goes. Rather, the, 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 the argument, which is the anti-Jewish argument at that point is, well, it's old news. It may be a truth, but it's old news and doesn't matter now. And whatever uh, gains politically or materially you, the Jewish community, want to still uh, you know, uh, glean from all that, well, we're going to put an end to it. So in other words, no more Holocaust guilt because it was too many generations ago. And whatever, whatever, whatever political gain you had because of Holocaust guilt is going to be reversed and undone. If these uh, yeah. anti-Semites and liberals have their way, they would be no, there is no Okay. Now, you yeah. had mentioned in the mid-20th yeah. century right. that these the Eastern Bloc of the countries were denying participation because of one thing was reparations. Uh, is that uh-huh. what you said? Just so, so part of it, yes. Part of it, yeah. So if we go further to the 21st century and Poland passing such laws... What is the motivation there? So again, so Poland is passing laws now, number one, to protect its its image, but secondarily because material claims might still be pursued against this or that entity, corporation, person, the government, and Poland doesn't like the idea of it being lumped together with, with Germany. It wants to regard itself as being the primary victim of German aggression, which basically it was. I mean, a lot of its citizens uh, died, Soviet Union too. Um, so I understand where the Polish leadership is coming from. They're wrong, and it's it's totally unfair to the Jews. But I, I get their motivation. They, they it's not for nothing that they're trying to push back against it. They're morally wrong, but they, but I know why they're doing it. But how did the anti-Jewish laws of the '30s 
bail out this denial. I, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend that they weren't participants if they themselves were passing these. Okay, these so, so, so Polish anti-Jewish legislation of the 1930s is something we can't just ignore. It was a fact. It's, and it's one of the reasons why people left Poland if they could get out to go to Eretz Israel or America or wherever. Uh, but most people couldn't get out, so they stayed. Uh, Poland, like Hungary, like Romania, and other Eastern, uh, Eastern European countries, which were carved out as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, were supposed to have minorities protections, and they did for a few years until such time as those democratic regimes crumbled. And then pseudo-fascist or outright fascist regimes took over and instituted laws that persecuted the Jews. So it's really impossible for these countries to say, well, we were good to our, our Jewish population. Uh, and they're not necessarily saying they were good to the Jewish population. They're just saying that, you know, the Shoah is not our fault. Okay, now let's go to the USSR. The USSR has a special role to play in Holocaust denial. The Russian, the, the Soviet government was very much interested in not exaggerating the number of casualties of deaths their, their, their population suffered in the war, but certainly giving a round number, which was a pretty high number on the end of the on the, on the high end of the, the range of possible estimates. Why? Because they wanted to show we suffered the most 20 million, 25 million, 27 million people died because of the war instigated by the, by the German government. And who do they include in that number? Every last Jew who lived in Soviet territory. Why? Because there was no Holocaust. There was simply German bad behavior that killed millions of people, millions of Soviet citizens, irrespective of their religious identity or of their national identity. Rather, what matters is Soviet citizenship. Remember, the Soviet Union is a, is a conglomeration of 15 different recognized nationalities, uh, which then, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, breaks up into 15 different countries. Uh, so they, they want to say, we're all Soviet brethren, comrades, and we all died together. There was no separate Jewish Holocaust. And that was a big problem for the Jews of the Soviet Union in the 1950s into the early 1960s, and was one of the reasons for the start of the Soviet Jewry movement. If you read the book, and I strongly recommend that you read the book, uh, when they come for us, we will be gone by um, uh, by Gal Kaufman. Um, when they come for us, we'll be gone. The history of the Soviet the struggle for Soviet Jewry it begins in the early 1960s in Riga in Latvia at Rumbuli. What's Rumbuli? Where they killed 30,000 Jews and buried them and had to dig them up and burn the corpses. And the first Holocaust memorial in the Soviet Union was illegally prepared by the Jews of Riga, including Yosef Mendelovich as a teenager, uh, in the forests outside of Riga, because they wanted to remember what had happened. And the Soviet Union wasn't interested in recalling this as a, as a specifically Jewish massacre or massacre of Jews. It was rather Soviet citizens died. Okay. Now, um, let's now go to... Absolutely, uh, Bobby Yar. So, uh, and and it, it took many, many years for the Ukrainian authorities to be willing to acknowledge that this is a specifically Jewish uh, 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 tragedy and not a Ukrainian tragedy, a tragedy imposed on the Ukrainians, but rather imposed by the Ukrainians on the Jews. Okay. Deborah Lipstadt versus David Irving. So, uh, for those who, who read about Holocaust denial, 
uh, who who saw the movie, that's the most famous case that um, that David Irving sued Deborah Lipstadt. So she was the defendant. He was the plaintiff, and she successfully defended herself in court. And uh, Irving was slammed by the judge and went into ignominy. Irving was not, for part of the time at least, what we would call a hardcore Holocaust denier. He was willing to concede there was a Shoah, but he wanted to reduce the, the, the number of deaths dramatically and was, uh, depending upon the day you caught him, either denying there were gas chambers or not denying there were gas chambers. He flitted between, back and forth between various opinions. Uh, but his loss to Deborah Lipstadt really put the, you know, the nail in his coffin, so to speak. Okay, what about... In England, yes. Defamation of character. Right. The person that's being sued yeah. has to prove. Right. That's what he said. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so the, 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 it, it, the, the burden of proof was um, was successfully shifted back onto Irving, who couldn't defend himself at that point. Now, what about laws against Holocaust denial? So, in countries that have freedom of speech, like the United States, we can't have laws against Holocaust denial. We don't. There are 17 countries in the world where these laws do exist, including Germany and including Israel, and even in Russia. Uh, but the laws differ in each place, depending upon the agenda of that particular country, very often skewed towards defending the historical record of that country's c- citizens and projecting blame exclusively on the German occupier. So sometimes laws against Holocaust denial are not the best friend of the Jew. I would argue that they're never the best friend of the Jew. In fact, Deborah Lipstadt is opposed to them. She thinks that robust discussion with the good guys winning against the bad guys is the way to do it, uh, as she was successfully able to do. Okay. What, what is worse than Holocaust denial? There are two things that's, that, that are worse rhetorically than Holocaust denial. No, because somebody else will remember. It's bad to forget. Lo tishkach. We never again. We always remember. But but there'll always be, there'll be someone else who will. Apathy. Apathy is pretty bad, also. But uh, right. Okay. What's far worse than Holocaust denial is that they had it coming. They had it coming, and it's oh, it's important to remember that because as much as we make a big stink at a Holocaust denial. Holocaust denial is an example of vice paying tribute to virtue. What is the vice paying tribute to virtue? The denier is acknowledging that wholesale slaughter of the Jews would have been a moral evil. All right, so we'll claim it didn't happen. But had it happened, we would have had to condemn it. We just deny that it happened. To say they deserved it is to say that a moral evil is a good thing. And what's even worse than that? Hitler didn't kill enough. He should have killed more. And you, you may have heard that at one point or another. Okay? In the worst moments of Jew on Gentile uh, hostile, rhetorical hostility, the worst thing can be said, Hitler didn't even kill enough. And I've heard it. I've heard it here in the streets of New York. Okay. I heard from my customers. I had a store. Yeah. Okay. He couldn't do that for the blacks. <laughs> now, let's go to... Let's move away from from Holocaust denial. Our our second to last topic before we're done for the night is anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. One of the the slogans you'll hear at pro-Israel rallies 
in the United States and maybe other countries too, and I'm not going to name any names of certain rabbinical figures who like this slogan, anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. I don't like that expression. It, uh, to defend it is very difficult. I don't want to defend it, but, but let's address the question of whether anti-Zionism is generally anti-Semitism, is sometimes anti-Semitism. Uh, where, where does it fit on the spectrum? So, okay. Well, I'll tell you a joke, uh, but, the, the, but, the, but uh, for, for the record, don't listen to this. Um, a, a, a certain uh, Goy wanted to convert to Judaism, so uh, he converted to Satmar. And somebody asked him, why did you convert to Satmar? Uh, and he responded in Hebrew, Ratziti lihit gayer, pantishemi ratziti lihishayer. So, <laughs> no, that's not for the record. So in the early stages of Zionism, let's talk Herzl, the Herzlian period. Um, Zionism was just a dream. But it was just an Agadah at the beginning. So for someone to be a non-Jew and an anti-Zionist in 1897, does that make them an anti-Semite? Not at all. Zionism is a pipe dream of some lunatic from Vienna. The Jews live wherever they live. They're going to continue to live wherever they live. I, a good goy, want Jews to be given emancipation in every, in every country in which they live. And I'm a uh, I'm a righteous Gentile. I love the Jews. Not an anti-Semite. They're not in Israel. That they have to move there? Who wants to move to us to a, to a swamp in the Middle East? Okay. I'm talk, let's ignore for the moment Jews and their anti-Zionism. Let's focus on Gentile anti-Zionism at every phase along the way. When can you argue that it is anti-Semitic necessarily? So not in Herzlian times, not even in World War I. After the Balfour Declaration, well, at that point, Zionism is still in its infancy uh, in terms of its material success. You know, as a political matter, it's been around for two decades. But, you know, if, if, if I'm a Gentile who, who lives in the United States, do I have any affirmative obligation as a good person to be a Zionist? No, I could want Jews to have rights wherever they are in the world. When does anti-Zionism really merge with anti-Semitism? The answer is, I would say, in 1939, with the, with the White Paper, there would be those who would argue that the British had legitimate political interests in objecting to Jewish immigration there to Israel, that to placate the Arabs for oil purposes, and we're fighting a war against the Nazis. You know, there there are, are moral bases for excluding Jews from Eretz Israel, for opposing the Zionist scheme. But there were also plenty of people who recognized the reality that, that was going to befall the Jews if they were stuck in, in wartime Europe, and we're getting their jollies out of it. So at that point, opposition to the Zionist scheme is not necessarily anti-Semitic, but it can be a manifestation of anti-Semitism because you know the doom and gloom it will follow. Okay, now we go to post-war, 1945 to 1948. At that point, is, anti-Semitism, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitic? Well, not necessarily, because after all, uh, a person might feel that the solution to the post-war Jewish refugee problem is their rep- repatriation to their original countries 
and that would be disastrous. And Jews would say, that's not fair. Why should we have to go there? And the response might be fine. You could be welcomed into Western countries, which is what exactly would happen probably to some of your parents. I mean, who may have been uh, come to this country in the 46, 7, 8, 9, 50, and early 50s. Um, but if, you, if that's your approach, then there is a solution to the Jewish problem that doesn't necessarily involve Eretz Yisrael, which you may feel is, you know, the Middle East, Arab part of the world, not to be a Jewish state. But there is a strong case to be made, a counter-argument, that voting against partition in 1947 was deliberately anti-Semitic. And who, in fact, voted against partition? Islamic countries and Cuba and like two other countries. I mean, uh, the, th- the 13 no votes were almost all Islamic countries. Right, right. That was, those were good years. Those were good years. In the, in the 1950s and early 60s, up until the Six-Day War, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. So actually, of all the, the different kufot, eras, when you could make this argument, the strongest argument would be then. 1949 to 1967, hostility to Israel in that era, before there's any occupation of any territories, or for that matter of of Palestinian population, to be aggressively hostile to the Zionist project at that point is really only a product of either geopolitics or anti-Semitism. After the Six-Day War, there are arguments to be made that you know your your preferred solution to the territorial conflict is at odds with the Israeli administration, and so therefore Zionism, the project of Jews settling the land of Israel, is becomes something of an of anathema since you don't like the direction it's headed. You may not have been anti-Semitic or even anti-Israel, but things are going in a bad direction as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Okay, good. So anti-Zionism in Eastern Europe after 1967 was anti-Semitic, absolutely. This was not out of any love for for the Palestinian population of the West Bank and Gaza or for any sense of fairness over settlement policy in the territories. Not at all. First of all, there was no settlement policy. Uh, There were almost no Jews in in, uh, the West Bank until 1977 anyway. Uh, Whatever settlements were built under labor were few and far between here and there. Not not that many people. Okay, so so anti-Zionism in Poland, in Hungary, and in the Soviet Union itself, uh, between 67... And the early 70s was anti-Zionism was very much anti-Semitic, very much so. And the Jews who lived there recognized that reality and tried to get out. And there was some exodus. There was a, 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 a small exodus of Jews from Poland in 67, 68. There was an exodus of Jews from Hungary in 68. There was an exodus of Jews from the Soviet Union in 71. Not nearly enough. And there were a lot of refuseniks, but there were people who left. And in part because anti-Semitism was on the rise. Uh, I don't understand how you make that statement. Yeah. No, you're saying that it's definitely anti-Semitism. The anti-Zionism was being used as uh, a cudgel with which to, to, to 
harm the, the Jewish citizenry of Eastern Europe. Now, it also happens to be the case that the Soviet Union was simply taking the Arab side in the Cold War, uh, or rather introducing the Cold War to the Middle East, taking the Arab side as America took the Israeli side. And so, yes, it's not just anti-Semitism, it's geopolitical conflict uh, you know, on the world stage. But it's also anti-Semitic, no doubt about it. I mean, Brezhnev didn't like Jews. Yeah. So that's, that was that. Now, what about moving forward? When we go to more recent times. So uh, Jewish anti-Zionists would argue that Israeli policy foments legitimate hostility to Israel, which then morphs into anti-Semitism. Now, Jewish anti-Zionists make that point. And I, a Fabrenta Zionist, happen to agree that they're right. They're, they're not wrong that Israeli policy can be a basis for which people who otherwise were not anti-Semitic to get all riled up against Israel, which in turn then metastasizes into a general hostility towards Jews. And we see that in the United States where people who grew up in suburban America and may have had Jewish neighbors and never really got, had a problem with anybody, you know, peace and love, but who become anti-Zionists because of whatever Israeli policy they don't like in their college years or early adulthood years. And then that can, sadly, transform itself into, I'll throw paint at a synagogue, or I'll throw some, you know, graffiti, I'll graffiti some Jewish institution, that Jewish institutions can suffer from the anti-Zionism of the domestic audience here. And that's really bad. When it happens, it's terrible. And we've got to do something to stop it. But that's what happens. Um, but it's not anti-Zionism, it's anti-Semitism. It, it, it morphs into anti-Semitism. It begins with anti-Zionism and becomes anti-Semitism. Well, an example would be if you go ahead and somebody mugs or kicks a Haredi, yeah. and they're saying that they, you know, they did it for the Arabs. <laughs> right, yeah. And, that, and it happens a lot. Okay, so um, let's now, with the few minutes we have left, address a problem that I never really addressed. How do we define anti-Semitism? There has been a major uh, machlokis over how to define anti-Semitism in recent years. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, developed a working definition of anti-Semitism, and I want to read it to you um, because governments use it in, in, you know, enacting their their hate crimes legislation and the like. So this was passed in 2016. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish Jewish and non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. So that's a lot of verbiage. I'm I'm not such a fan of it. Why did I not bother to define anti-Semitism in this course? Basically, what we did was cover historically every major episode of animus towards Jews from the outside, whether it was only rhetorical or whether whether it involved violence and whether it involved murderous violence, whether it was religious based, secular based, we covered it. 
because I'm not looking for compensation for victimhood. I don't need some legal definition that I have to satisfy in order to get somebody else to take a dollar out of their pocket and give it to me or give my give it to my community. If I was working for the World Jewish Congress or the American Jewish Congress or whatever alphabet soup organization, and I needed to justify in legal terms some material claim against the outside world, then I'd have to have some working definition. But that's not what I'm trying to do here. So I don't need a working definition. What am I trying to do here for the past nine, 10 months that we've been learning? I just want to alert an internal Jewish audience of outside animus towards our people as it has been expressed over time and place. And I think we were successful in doing so. Uh, And that outside animus can take a wide range of forms. um, And it doesn't matter that it doesn't fit this or that very narrow definition. Okay. Right. So, so just, so, so just as, just as our adversary doesn't need a reason and doesn't need a precise definition, we on the receiving end don't need a precise definition. Of course, some would argue that as an academic matter, as a, as a rigorous intellectual matter, if you don't have a definition, then you're just, uh, you know, speaking nonsense, that it's not grounded. Uh, okay, so, so, I, so I, would, I would argue that that may well be true in the strict sense of the academy, of the university. But we're not living in the academy in the university. We're in a shul. And in a shul, what matters is the kishkas. So we had to understand at the gut level the disdain that the outside world may have had for our people over time. And so with that, I'm going to close. We began with the classical period, the Greco-Roman times. We continued through the founding of Christianity and the adoption of the Christianity by the Roman Empire and how that affected the fate of the Jew in the Western world. We covered the medieval period and all sorts of nonsensical accusations and libelous accusations that we were desecrating somebody else's faith and religion. We proceeded to the late medieval and early modern period where books become written, uh, putting together all sorts of citations from our literature out of context in attempts to besmirch our religion and our, uh, our values. We came to opposition to emancipation on the grounds that Jews are unworthy or, or injurious to society. We came to pushing back against emancipation when already granted which is the beginning of modern-day political anti-Semitism. We covered World War I, we covered World War II, the Shoah, and we addressed Holocaust denial and a whole bunch of other things in between. So on that note, I bid everybody farewell. Have a good summer. We'll continue next season. Take care, everybody.